This is Anne Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us. This year alone, there have been more than 110 wildfires that have burned over 1.8 million acres, mostly in the West. No matter where you live in the United States, though, you are likely familiar with the high-intensity Western wildfires that flare up each year due to national news coverage and the devastating effects they often bring. But the topic of wildfires is very nuanced. It is not as simple as the black and white world of wildfires are bad and should be prevented. Each wildfire needs to be considered on an individual basis. The issues surrounding wildfires are very complex and deserve an in-depth look into those complexities. And as you will soon discover in this episode of We Are Rivers, wildfires, believe it or not, have a whole lot to do with the health of rivers. Wildfires help dictate the health of our forests, and forests help dictate the health of our rivers. The role that forests play in ecosystem health bears directly on water quality and quantity. So forests and our river health are intertwined together in a way that sometimes people aren't really recognizing. This is Ellen Roberts. She lives outside Durango, Colorado, and is a consultant with the Colorado State Forest Service. She was a state legislator for over a decade, working at the state capitol in Denver on natural resource issues spanning from forest health to water policy. She is trained as a lawyer, but started her work in natural resources as a park ranger at Rocky Mountain National Park and had also worked in Canyonlands and Yellowstone National Park back in college. Her practice in conservation spans many different roles, bringing a unique and valuable perspective. Forest health is where the life of our rivers begin. So to me, it's not a chicken and egg thing at all. It It is where it all starts. So if you have healthy forests, you're going to have much healthier waterways and rivers. And that is an area that a lot of people are focusing now is this connection between forests and water. This is Rob Addington, a forest and fire ecologist with a nature conservancy based in Colorado. He has spent most of his career working with forests that have been shaped by frequent fire, such as lone leaf pine ecosystems in the southwest to ponderosa pine systems in the west, and has spent a good bit of time both researching these types of forests and working in their restoration to understand how they can best be managed to create a resilient forest that can persist long into the future. So the impacts of wildfires on rivers are that Colorado is a headwater state. We have four major U.S. rivers that whose headwaters are in Colorado. We supply through our river system 19 states and Mexico with their water supply. So what happens when we have these, particularly the catastrophic wildfires, you have an increase in sedimentation. So it might be ash, could be burnt logs, might be soil that's washed away as the vegetation has been burnt. Um, And it ends up in our stream beds and also uh, has significant impact on the stream banks. Forests are really important for stabilizing soils, especially in areas like the western U.S. where uh, topography can be often pretty rugged. And without vegetation, there's not much to really hold soils on those hillsides. So when we do have a large-scale high severity of fire event that results in high levels of tree mortality and vegetation mortality overall, we lose that structure for holding the soils in place. 
So what happens, the wildfires, when they burn so intensely with this dense fuel load that we have, the soils develop kind of a crust on the top. So you would have some of this even with a softer fire, if you want to call it that. But when you have these high-intensity fires, it takes years for that soil to kind of break that crust. So the water runs off much faster than it would if the soil were more normal in its materials. And then the next thing that happens after these fires is the flooding. So for many years, decades, it can be a flood zone after one of these big fires. So it has huge impacts on our river systems. And so often what we see after fire events, um, especially if a rain event occurs after fire, is a lot of soil erosion and sedimentation into the waterways, both uh, into rivers, streams, and then uh, reservoirs. And it takes years for streams to figure out their new bed as they come through the fire zone. So we've seen that here outside Durango. We had a catastrophic wildfire in 2002 known as Missionary Ridge Fire. And so 2002, and we're in 2018. In 16 years, we still have creeks that uh, that are uh, feeding into the Animas River. So we have Stevens Creek that feeds into the Animas River. Still hasn't found its new geological stream bed. And so the people who live along that stream have to, every spring, wonder and worry about whether it will move in a direction that affects their property, and you actually have mudslides, so people have to worry about mudslides. That's also a big problem in California. So you can have a lot of damage from these fires that is long after the fire is out, but it's still impacting people and the waterways in the path of where the fire had been or below those paths. And so that, that's been one of the chief concerns really around fire is the impacts to water resources and what we can do to really try to protect those water resources from fire. Our drinking water is also impacted by these wildfires because the sedimentation, some of the nutrients that are flushed into the river system will end up in our water supply. So. Um, our water treatment plants are often overloaded with all of the trying to sift out what is now in the water. Um, in a lot of these rural areas, people depend on well water rather than a centralized water system. And wells can be very sensitive to the impact of the wildfires as their water supply is also infiltrated with some of the debris that comes from the wildfires. What we've also seen is for those who have centralized water system, particularly on the front range, they'll see their pipes exposed or, or completely wiped out, destroyed. And again, their water treatment plants can be overloaded. A lot of the water used drinking water that is used in urban areas along the front range comes from the Western Slope Headwaters region. So it's an urban and a rural problem the water utilities pay high prices to dredge their reservoirs, restore their infrastructure, and ultimately it's the ratepayers, the those who are turning on their tap and there could be a townhome or apartment in downtown Denver, but they're paying the cost, whether they realize it or not, for the wildfires and the impacts on the water systems.
one example here in Colorado that's often pointed to is both the Hayman Fire and Buffalo Creek Fires. The Hayman Fire in 2002 and the Buffalo Creek Fire um, preceded that in 1996. But both of those fires had um, big impacts to Denver water resources in uh, Cheeseman Lake and then Strauncha Springs Reservoir. Uh, and the uh, estimate in terms of funding required and money spent by Denver Water to remove sediment from the reservoirs to try to stabilize the banks, remove debris, um, is pushing just under $30 million, so around $28 million um, at this point, and they're still dealing with the impacts of those fires in both of those reservoirs, uh, some in the case of the Buffalo Creek Fire over 20 years later now. So it is a, a, a primary concern related to the wildfires, which is the impact on water. Then when you have the impact on the wildlife and the fisheries and habitat, for instance, the fisheries, when you have that much sedimentation coming down post-fire, there can be some really negative impacts, fish mortality, if you've got too much sedimentation in the rivers. Then you have the impact on the rafting, uh, fishing, outdoor recreation, and tourism economies. Many of our towns that are located on our rivers are really dependent on that recreation economy and tourism so nobody wants to go uh, recreate when there's a fire it's not safe um, and it certainly isn't enjoyable when you have that intense smoke clearly today's massive newsworthy fires of high intensity are creating problems for rivers and for those living on the wilderness rural interfaces in cities of the west and since wildfires clearly have such sweeping negative impacts on rivers and communities, let's take the rest of this episode to dive into the topic of wildfire and all of its nuance. I asked Ellen why wildfires seem to be increasing in number and severity across the West, and our conversation went as follows. The simple answer is, why are we having more wildfires? It's because we have a lot more dead trees and understory in our forests. We've got drier and hotter climates. We've got less moisture in terms of snowpack and how quickly the snow is melting off these days. And then we have the spark, which starts the wildfires, be it human-caused or it might be lightning strikes. So we've got kind of a perfect storm in terms of all the ingredients to make a fire. And um, we're seeing a lot of fire behavior that is driven by this large fuel load that creates a catastrophic wildfire rather than a more moderate, natural-paced forest fire. Ellen references an increase in fuel load. Fuel load is a large buildup of dry and dead organic material on a forest's floor. This buildup fuels wildfires and is also referred to as ground litter. So why are we seeing an increase of fuel load or ground litter? We have so many more dead trees today, standing dead and trees that have fallen down because our our forests are unhealthy. They're too dense. We have allowed a lot of skinny, straggly trees to grow up in a stand that make all of the trees unhealthy. We have not thinned them. Mother Nature used to do it naturally uh, through thinning and fires. Uh, humans had, can also play a role in thinning them. But we've come to see forests, really densely packed forests, as a kind of a new normal. So when people talk about thinning or uh, prescribed burns, you get a lot of 
human reaction that, no, no, that's not the way nature intended it. And in fact, that's actually wrong. So this distorted view of what is a healthy forest is hurting our ability to manage our forests in a more holistic and actually natural way. What's playing out is we have insects and disease that have moved in on these unhealthy trees and actually kill them. And then the hotter and drier temperatures also is a factor to more tree mortality. And we're talking about the western U.S. where we have low humidity and oftentimes living in semi-arid or high desert conditions already. So the, the trees are suffering, frankly, and the result is that they're dying. And then we end up with that fuel, both standing dead trees and, again, the understory, which is the brush underneath it. Okay, so a lot was just thrown at you, but let's break it down. One, the West is becoming more arid, so there is an increased tree mortality, which leads to a buildup of dead, dry trees on a forest floor. Two, the living understory of forests are becoming too dense. There are more upcoming saplings than a forest can provide, and these saplings also add to fuel load. But why is it that, as Alan says, Mother Nature is no longer preening? If a crowded forest is not a healthy forest, then why are they becoming so crowded? If nature didn't intend for forests to be as dense as they are today, then what has caused them to be? The answer is multifaceted, but one of the big factors has to do with wildfire suppression. Because if you suppress all wildfires for a long period of time, even those caused by lightning, then the fuel load is not allowed to burn off on a forest's floor and it accumulates. Then, when there is a fire, it becomes extremely intense, fast-moving, and hotter and more destructive. The, the litter on the forest floor, in terms of the natural litter, is part of the fuel that leads to the catastrophic wildfire. But I think what we're also seeing is, again, this tree density and, and this perception. You know, the Forest Service had a policy of every fire would get put out by 10 a.m., so we have Smokey the Bear, who we all love, and uh, many of us grew up with only you can prevent wildfires. Well, actually, that's not true. Mother Nature and lightning strikes can start wildfires. There are other ways that fires can get started. You know, at the time of fire suppression, which is over 100 years ago now in terms of when the, the policy was introduced kind of following the big burns of uh, 1910, um, at that time, we didn't have as much information about the historical role of fire and the importance of fire. So it really was any fire uh, we were really trying to put out. And I think the science matured kind of through the mid-1900s, and we began to understand some of the downsides, really, of, of suppressing fires and understand the natural role of fire in these systems. So it's been certainly a learning process that we've come to over time through the use of science. So with fire suppression, again, over 100 years ago now, when, when policies were enacted, uh, we've seen an increase in forest density, um, an increase in overall fuel loads, both of which, if fire was allowed to naturally occur, would have been reduced over time or just would not have accumulated in the ways that they have over time. And so with that fire suppression policy, we've got a forest condition now in many parts of the western U.S. that 
is when we do have ignitions is prone to these large-scale high-severity wildfire events like we've been seeing um, in the last couple of decades in particular. So the fuels component is, is certainly a big reason for why we're seeing the, uh, the increase in both wildfire numbers but also wildfire severity. To sum up what we've covered so far, if you prevent natural wildfires for a long period of time, as has been done throughout U.S. history, the ground litter builds up from a lack of more frequent small fires. So then when there is a fire, either from lightning or from a human cause, it can be disastrous. The high buildup of fuel characterizes an unhealthy, high-intensity fire-prone forest. But there are also a lot of other factors that go into forest health. So forest health is one of those terms that is a bit ambiguous and has a few different definitions, but I think of it often as a forest that has characteristic species, composition, and structure in some ways similar to what was, was there historically. So we do look to the historical condition to think about what forests were like historically and how we can use that information to think about forest health in a present-day context. And I often think of a healthy forest as having intact ecological processes such as fires and often equate it with resilient forests as well. So a forest that's able to recover from those natural disturbances like fire and insect and, and disease outbreaks. And if the forest is unable to recover from those types of events, then uh, that's often a difference between a healthy and an unhealthy forest is basically the extent to which the forest can really persist in the face of those disturbances. When we look at pictures, once photography kind of came on the scene in the late 1800s, we see photographs of Colorado's forest from 100 years ago or so, maybe even 120 years. And we see a much less dense stand. So Mother Nature uh, did not have, it worked in a way that there were not this tree density that we have today. So it's been in part because we've suppressed fire. Fire is a natural part of the Western U.S. ecosystem. So by putting fire out, we have uh, impacted the tree density stand. We also stopped thinning trees, some of the logging that would occur, even back to the mining days. So you have, when you're not thinning it, by human hands, when Mother Nature's not thinning it, by ecological standards, then you just get this tree density. And the kind of the tipping point became is when it became more normal to see these really dense stands and people go, oh, well, this is what a healthy forest looks like. We need to re-envision what a healthy forest looks like, and it would be much less density than we have today. But We've gotten so used to seeing trees standing very closely together, whether it's the, the view of a landscape miles away or even walking in the woods. We think it's normal to have these tree stands so dense. And, in fact, we need to move out to an idea of 10 feet between trees uh, as a more normal, healthy environment for the trees, which, again, ultimately affects our water systems. So, although we as a society can easily fall into an ideology that wildfires are bad, this isn't necessarily true. 
Slow-moving, frequent ground fires regenerate a forest and are necessary for certain types of forests that require them as part of their ecological cycle. Fire, in its natural role, would serve to not only reduce the what we call the surface fuels of the pine needles um, and other uh, branches, twigs, uh, cones, things that are on the forest floor, but also would serve to reduce the smaller trees coming into the forest, what we call the, the tree regeneration, the seedlings and the saplings. And it would certainly not kill all small trees. Uh, we, we definitely know that these forests were often had mixed ages, so a number of different age classes represented historically. But when we remove fire from the system, there is no real control on that, that tree regeneration uh, response. And so basically the little trees can just kind of come in and fill in a lot of the space uh, that would have otherwise been uh, left open with, with fire. It's important to stress Rob's point that even though it's good to weed saplings for decreased tree density, this doesn't mean that a forest should have tree types all the same age. A more natural forest, a more fitting forest for the western U.S., is not a group of trees of the same age. Not a monoculture, but different trees, uh, different tree species, different ages. You'd have open meadows, good for habitat, uh, for wildlife. And again, what we've, we've got this overcrowding of trees that oftentimes are of the same age and the same species. So we need to restore it to a more natural landscape. To make the situation even more multifaceted, the excessive buildup of ground litter doesn't mean that all ground litter is bad. Often we see a forest, if there are dead trees in the forest, we think it's an unhealthy forest. And I do want to point out that the dead trees are a natural part of the forest and doesn't necessarily mean that it's in an unhealthy state. The way wildfire plays into this is when Mother Nature had wildfire in the mix, it would be a slow-moving ground fire, not what we have today where the fires are jumping from treetops, the, the crown or the canopy of the trees. And so we get these really high-temperature fires, often with winds that come in and affect the path of the fire. And then another important component uh, around the smaller trees is what we call ladder fuels and the way in which the forest is structured sort of vertically where we have the, the what we call the mature overstory trees but then underneath those trees are the smaller trees that when they catch on fire they can actually move fire from the ground surface into the, the canopy or into the crowns of the trees and then we have what's called a, an active crown fire um, under the right conditions under high winds and, and dry temperatures and low relative humidity so that tree regeneration component the seedlings and saplings become important from that ladder fuel perspective as well. So it's additionally important for slow-moving ground fires to weed seedlings to prevent the ladder flows that lead to fast-moving canopy fires. And, as I previously mentioned, some forests are ecologically dependent on ground, also known as surface fires. That particular type of fire, what we think of as surface fire, uh, lower intensity, lower severity in terms of fire effects, is important in shaping the 
ponderosa pine systems in the western U.S. and also um, in some cases mixed conifer. And again, it is uh, you know a natural process that has, has shaped numerous forests, especially in the western U.S. over time in terms of both the structure and the composition and the overall function of the forest. So it is important, again, in those dry coniferous forest types like ponderosa pine, it's important for really maintaining uh, a more open forest condition, and ponderosa pine itself is, is really well adapted to that frequent surface fire regime and uh, tends not to be impacted too much by that type of fire. It has very thick bark and, and can withstand that type of fire. And so fire was really important for keeping the forest very open historically. Uh, we talk about often that mosaic of forest conditions in the ponderosa pine and mixed conifer forest where we would have meadows that were maintained through fire, single individual trees just kind of out on their own in some cases in the meadows, and then groups of trees. So uh, uh, kind of uh, what we often call kind of a groupy, clumpy structure to the forest that was maintained by fire. And so it's important for kind of the overall structure, composition of the forest, but also in terms of the vegetation that the forest contains and then the wildlife as well. On the other side of that, fire burning in that type of forest system where forest density is higher and we're actually losing through fire, losing the species that are present because the fire can get so intense and has uh, high severity fire effects that those species just simply aren't adapted to. And so we lose a lot of the components of the forest through through that type of fire. So we often use the term characteristic versus uncharacteristic fire, and that again kind of goes back to the way in which fire behaved historically in these areas. And uh, that that's for me a kind of the distinction between a healthy wildfire versus an unhealthy wildfire. And, Again, it's mostly in this uh, ponderosa pine and mixed conifer um, forest type where we've seen more uh, dramatic change in the way in which fire is behaving currently relative to historically. And to maintain a balance of forest health, the Forest Service initiates what's called prescribed burns. Prescribed fire is the deliberate setting of fire under very controlled and planned conditions by people who are, are trained in the use of fire, but basically under what we call a, a burn plan and prescription, setting fire to the landscape, controlling where that fire goes, but basically reintroducing fire through that controlled process, uh, but doing it in a way that does try to mimic the, the wildfire dynamic in some cases, but also just restoring that natural ecological process of fire. And the benefits of prescribed fire, again, is that we are able to control the conditions under which fire occurs um, and ensure that there are less in the way of negative impacts um, as a result of fires. Uh, but it is important for restoring that process, um, reducing fuels, stimulating nutrient cycling, um, other things that are tied to fire that are uh, important that we are able to reintroduce through fire. Um, it's also good for fire-dependent vegetation, fire-dependent wildlife are things that we look at in a broader forest management set of objectives that we can achieve through, through the use of prescribed fire. We are speaking about fires as both good and bad, but since wildfires can become so big, encompassing thousands of acres, is there really a way to distinguish a good fire from a bad fire when it spans so many different forest types? The truth is, 
There are parts of a wildfire that have a healthy burn, and then there are also parts of it that create problems. It's a complex, nuanced topic, and it's all about scale. Within any given fire, you do have areas that uh, fire is playing a, its natural role and, and having desired outcomes and operating in what we might think of as a, a healthy way, but then in other cases, less so. And so it is, it's variable. And I would say is, you know, dependent on the conditions under which a wildfire burns, we tend to have um, this time of year in the summer when it's dry, when it's hot, when we have high winds, fires that, given the heavy fuel loads, can have undesirable effects. But again, it kind of gets to the question of the, the scale of that uh, effect. And if it's over a very large scale, that's something we're concerned about. But if it's at smaller scales, then it's consistent with what we think of as a mixed severity fire regime, which is a little more in line with uh, the historical fire regime. Um, so it's, it's variable, but I would say the wildfires that we hear about on the news are often the ones that, that we can't suppress uh, because they're occurring under more extreme conditions and then they are having outcomes that are less desirable from perspective of uh, protecting values at risk, human communities, water resources, um, those sorts of things. In the making of this podcast, I called up my best friend, Sophie Caddo, and as equally unfortunate as coincidental, a wildfire had started in her hometown of Basalt, Colorado, the late Christine Fire. A couple had not adhered to the fire ban on the weekend of the 4th of July and had started the massive fire. As we talked, Sophie was in the process of evacuating her house and gathering her most precious belongings. To tell her story, she let me record her phone call, and our conversation went as follows. Right now I'm carrying up a box full of all the photographs and um, memories that took place in this house that I can't, that I just can't leave. I've got a drawing in here that a, a friend of mine did back in high school. And uh, all the all the hand-me-downs my grandma gave me when she passed away, my mom's old wedding dress. But I'm coming right outside as we speak right now. And as I'm walking outside, uh, it's really hot and bright out. And it's really easy to see the little specks of ash that keep falling. Kind of looks like bugs, but uh, you look a little closer. It's like these little white specks. I don't know if you can hear it, but the helicopters going in for another bucket of water. So I'm looking at a huge column of smoke right now. Oh my gosh. There's just ash everywhere. There's ash everywhere and there's so many people just standing on the side of the road and there's a giant plume of fire. I can see the flame, not just the smoke anymore and it's black. When we talk about wildfires, we are also talking about people. The interface between the natural and human world offers some of the most devastating impacts of wildfires. Since the late Christine fire was directed away from Sophie's hometown of Basalt, coming only within 500 feet of her home, the fire has been allowed to burn because, in this case, the forest actually does need the burn. Where the problem came into play was the human wilderness interface. 
as opposed to slow-moving, low-intensity wildfires that improve a forest health, like managed prescribed burns, the high-intensity, fast-moving wildfires of today's national news are devastating the communities they affect and also creating extreme hazards to rivers and difficulties to water managers. So what can we, as a society, do to better understand the connection between wildfires and rivers? We really need to have people community education efforts to underscore that because we have public safety issues. Again, the the fires present a direct threat to people. Colorado has lost a number of lives, uh, not to mention wildlife impacts, but um, we've had firefighters who've died fighting the fires. We have a lot of property damage, which translates into uh, difficulty sometimes for people to get property insurance. So how do we go about improving forest health and mitigating devastating wildfires? What can you do? We need people to be taking care of their property. It's not just somebody else's problem. If you live on an acre or five acres or 10 acres of property and you have trees on your property, then you've got a responsibility to take care of your property because if the fire starts on your land, it could easily go over to your neighbor's land and from your neighbor can move on to the next parcel. So a lot of times people have not really absorbed what all of this means. But again, I go back to healthy forest is the start of a healthy river and watershed system, and they have to be seen as tied together. And I definitely think there's a role for Private landowners in particular, uh, folks who live in wildland urban interface settings and can do work on their own properties, um, defensible space type of work where they're clearing out trees within what's known as the home ignition zone. Um, and coupling that with these larger kind of landscape scale strategies where we're managing the, the forest at a larger landscape level, but coupling it with what individual homeowners can do on their own properties is a really um, important overall approach, and it's consistent with uh, principles through um, what's known as fire-adapted communities and then uh, fire-wise principles as well in terms of how you manage your own properties, um, the vegetation on the properties, but also the the building materials that go into new construction um, or existing construction, and, you know, thinking about the fire issue um, holistically from the standpoint of people living in fire-prone environments, what they can do individually, um, but then also what we can do working with uh, public land management agencies like the Forest Service to, to manage the larger landscape. Um, so there's there's definitely a role for, for all of us in that, um, both on the public side and the uh, the private side. There are, in many places in the state of Colorado, there are state forestry people who will work with landowner, private landowners to figure out what's the, what would create a healthy uh, forested landscape around their property. There are cooperative extension people. The U.S. Forest Service is working closely with adjoining landowners. So there are a lot of resources available. The state of Colorado has a income tax credit for landowners, so to help them financially with doing work on their own property. We have a diverse mix of property ownership in Colorado. We have a lot of public lands. We have state forested lands. 
we have uh, tribal lands, and then we have private land ownership. And so when you add all of that up, it re- it makes for a complicated landscape, but it's one that all of us need to be working together to try and get to those healthy forests. But despite the potential for collaboration, there are no shortage of challenges we must overcome. So a big challenge certainly is the, the scale of the issue, even just, uh, so I'm on the front range, but even just looking out um, my office window and, and seeing the dense forest conditions uh, really throughout the landscape, it's uh, a, a large-scale problem that we need to be thinking about in terms of how we can really make a difference at the scale that we need to. We know wildfire operates over really large scales, and we, need, we know that we need to be doing forest management at similar, uh, similarly large scales in order to really um, address the issue. We need to view this as a landscape scale issue, not a one national forest parcel. We need to be looking at it much broader. And in southwest Colorado, we're also working with people in northwestern New Mexico because many of our forests will cross even state boundaries and Mother Nature doesn't work on geopolitical boundaries, and we need to have that landscape-scale view uh, as we work through these problems. Tackling that issue of scale, um, being really strategic in the way in which we do that, so we know that we don't need to do forest management everywhere, um, but if we approach it very strategically and bring science to the way in which we prioritize and identify where we work. Um, That's another important piece is identifying the most important areas to work and then trying to get to the the appropriate scale that we can in those most important areas. Um, And then funding, uh, we do need more. It's it's often one of those things that is under-resourced from the standpoint of um, addressing the scale of the problem. And so funding continues to be a challenge and just – having enough funding available to um, support the work. Um, And then climate change definitely comes to mind as a big uh, challenge going forward from the standpoint of just understanding uh, impacts of climate change and then um, trying to develop strategies for uh, addressing what we are anticipating from the standpoint of climate change. Uh, Hotter temperatures, um, shorter winters, less snowpack, less moisture, Um, quicker runoff is all impacting our trees and uh, stressing them. So it's adding to the wildfire threat by adding additional tree mortality with climate change. We are expecting longer fire seasons, uh, hotter weather under which fires may occur, um, and just thinking about appropriate management strategies to really try to set these forest systems up to be more resilient under um, a future climate has been both a challenge, but also I think presents an opportunity for developing science and thinking creatively about how we manage our forests. There are a lot of challenges, but there is also a lot of hope and innovation. In the last decade, especially, I would say, um, I've seen a lot of people just coming together through different collaborative groups, uh, including utilities, forest managers, communities, to really come together to try to identify the the problem and think about approaches to it um, in a collaborative way. I'm a strong believer that we can do more working together in collaboratives than we can individually as, as agencies and organizations. 
The U.S. Forest Service has taken a really strong approach in Colorado to collaborative work. So working on a local level with the Colorado State Forest Service and landowners and people who work on wildfire mitigation of properties, the the collaborative approach, much like the um, water basin roundtables that we work on water policy with, we've got these collaboratives that are working on forest health. So the government has played a good role in being at the table and seeking solutions, but trying to understand what the local dynamics are and um, and hearing from the people who are living in these areas about what's the best approach. So we have these public agencies that are learning to collaborate well together, but also with the communities and, and the private sector because resources are very limited, just like with our Colorado State Water Plan and the challenges we face there, knowing that we have a long to-do list, we don't get enough governmental money to do the forest health work that we need to do at the pace and scope that it would require to get to healthy forests. So we need to, again, incorporate the private sector into this picture. There's also a number of uh, NGOs and other uh, groups who want to be part of the solution think we really need all hands on deck to figure this out, and we don't have 25 years to figure it out. We're going to continue to see our forest burn, our communities impacted, our waterways polluted, frankly, from the forest fires. So we need to be doing this on a much quicker scale than we've been doing it. So the key is going to be these collaboratives that engage with all the different sectors, public, private, at community levels. We we really need community education and outreach because it is uh, community outreach and education to understand the magnitude of the problem and also the shift in public perception of what is a healthy forest. So again, working on an environmentally sustainable and sensitive way, we've got to see that as more and more people move into the forested areas, we've got to have a tree stand density that makes sense and that having a forest products industry in place can be actually complementary and is not destructive of the forest health, but it's something that we're going to need in place. We want to encourage and invite back uh, people into those businesses, be it sawmills or, again, wood products, might be biomass, electricity generation. A lot of the rural communities located in and around the forest would love to have some economic development opportunities to help improve our forests, uh, but also to provide sustainable jobs. And so, there you have it. The tree products industry is not necessarily the enemy. We have much to do to make our forests more healthy. Industry, as well as you, can play a role. Rivers, forest health, and wildfires are undeniably connected. While the challenges facing our rivers and forests today are immense, there are actions we can take to protect and preserve the places where we live and the rivers we love. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Rivers, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please rate and comment. This helps others discover our podcast series too, and we appreciate your support.